Hi there. Welcome back to The Real Film Chronicles. As always, I'm Nathan. And I'm Brian. And on this week's exciting episode, we're going to talk about a couple of films. It, It Chapter 2, and It, the original miniseries from the, was it 1990? 1990, exactly. This is quite the value proposition for our (laughs) listeners, I think. Not just one film, not just two, but three films. And the 1990 version was originally two parts. Like, it was a TV movie or TV series, right? What they used to call uh, a miniseries, I guess. Now they would call it, what's it, what do they call them now? I think they call them limited series now. Yeah, the exact same thing we used to do in the 90s, just rebranded. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seems pretty fair. And I think what I was reading about it, that original miniseries for the 90s was proposed as like an eight or nine part series, which I think would... In today's TV landscape, it definitely would have been at least eight movies. Or sorry, not eight, eight movies, <laughs> <least> but eight. <laughs> <laughs> at least eight movies. You're going to at least like five lead-up movies with the main characters. Yeah. And then team up. A whole cinematic universe. Well, now you got me thinking. Like a whole, yeah, whole Stephen King, Castle Rock, Derry, <laughs> it multiverse with all this stuff going on would be pretty Well, wild. really what they got to do is like, build all these movies and really the dark tower movie ultimately would tie yeah, everything yeah. together. Cause they're kind of like, you're, you're much more familiar wheel. with, you're much more familiar with the dark tower series, but I imagine like that movie that came out a few years ago with Idris Elba absolutely bombed and just derailed any hope of, of fans of that series seeing like a proper adaptation. Yeah. I have yet to see it. Um, and the casting by the way, isn't a problem. Matthew McConaughey, Idris Elba, Amazing actors, but like the Dark Tower second, I don't know if it just tried to adapt the the first book, The Gunslinger, or if it tried to adapt like more content than that. Yeah, um, because it's a seven book um series. Well, seven books in the main series, and then there are offshoots and graphic novels. Um, but uh, it's it's, it's pretty a, wild. It's a it's an epic story um told across multiple worlds, and like there's no way I, that I can see that you could boil that down to a two hour movie. So yeah. I don't know. So the movie It's like the book It's uh, for anyone not familiar. And I feel like everyone's pretty familiar with the basic concept here. Of, They're familiar of like with the what? parallel story. They're familiar with It? A group of It. Yes. With what? The the basic story. Of what? Of It? Yeah. Of what? Oh man, you're killing <laughs> me here. <laughs> the, the basic story of these kids who basically encounter this murderous supernatural clown managed to defeat it and then 27 years later as they're adults have to come back and fight it again right and i think the novel is told in kind of a parallel alternating chapter between their childhood and them as adults and the 1990 tv movie was done in a very similar fashion where it was kind of focused on the adults with the the child sections like told 30 years of the past it's kind of like flashback and like character building for the adults where the new modern remake, well, you know what? It's not really, it's not a remake. It's a new adaptation of the, of the source material yeah. in 2017 movie is focused entirely hundred percent on the, on the kid's perspective. And then two years later, we get it chapter two, which is told from the adult's perspective, but we still get flashbacks to the, the, the to them as kids, right. For more of that, that background and whatnot. What was your familiarity with it growing up? Because 
This came out in 1990. I was about eight, nine years old at the time of this coming out. Were you aware of this? Had you seen it before? We watched it this past weekend. Uh, no, I had no hype, no expectations. I, I have to confess, still, I haven't read the book yet. I hadn't seen the 1990 version before. It's been around for a long time. It's been in like Blu-ray and DVD bargain bins yeah. for quite some time, and I kept right. meaning to pick it up. I just kept getting kind of pushed back. They announced the remake several years ago. Like I didn't think it was that long ago, but it's... It's already it's 20 years 22, <laughs> which is kind of frightening. Because I think what it was with 2017 and it chapter two was 2019. That's right. Um, but I had no expectations for these movies. I had a general kind of idea about what they were about in terms of, you know, kids fighting an evil clown monster and then coming back as adults to fight an evil clown monster. But I didn't know really any of the, the particulars. I do remember yeah. growing up watching a lot of Stephen King miniseries because like they love adapting. It was those impossible things. to avoid. Yeah. Like yeah. he had so many so much content in movies, TV series, everything King wrote was being adapted into something. It was impossible yeah, to avoid. Yeah, like but, the Langoliers, the stand is still I love that movie, um unironically and unapologetically. Or that miniseries rather. Unironically <laughs> and unapologetically. It's I know that they remade that recently. And I have no desire to see the updated version. I think the original version was perfect. Perfect casting, perfect everything. No, oh, that's fair. I've, I haven't seen any of those uh, miniseries from back in the day, but I remember oh, yeah. them being on TV, and I, I can remember my parents recording them uh, to watch them. I never got around to it. For, the, for It, the 1990 version, I think I saw one scene when probably my parents were watching it on TV that possibly scarred me for life. And it's a scene where they're in the sewers and there's the group of bullies harassing, like, well, bullying our group of uh, heroes. And one of the bullies is pulled into a sewer pipe. Uh. But as he's pulled in, he's kind of like folded in half and screaming and screaming and just yanked into the pipe with like flashes of light. And he disappears. He's gone. He's dead. I saw that when I was a kid. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's one of the reasons I avoided watching that original movie for so long is just like, I know what the, the story is. I know that one scene and that's enough to, to satisfy my horror uh, needs for, for quite a while. <laughs> but I'm really glad that we, we undertook this project to watch all three movies because uh, it was a good, good opportunity to watch this original, original movie. It 2017 runtime. We can talk about the runtime here. The original Spoilers. TV movie was... <laughs> Running at 192 minutes, right? Like it's it's a beefy three plus hours. The 2017 adaptation alone is 135 minutes. Okay. And then the part two is 169 minutes. It's a lot of content. And I think you said before we, we recorded that the book is just about 1,100 pages long. It's a good like thousand it's one pages of probably yeah. a Yeah. It's, I don't know. Stephen King writes a lot of long books. His books are, are huge. And I'm not sure if this is one of the bigger ones, but it seemed like there was a lot of content, which would make it very difficult to adapt into any kind of uh, piece of content. A TV series would make sense. Uh, a couple of movies make sense as well. Before I guess before we really talk about the movies here, what was your overall impression of all watching all three of them there? Like what what did you what did you walk away with feeling? Uh <laughs> I felt uh, <laughs> it was very complicated. Um, overall, I was not a huge fan of 
any of them, any three of the these movies slash miniseries. <laughs> okay. I gave yeah. them pretty low rankings on Letterboxd, which we'll discuss later. So on the one hand, as films and as narratives, I think that they were um, in large part failures. But on the other hand, um, for the past week, I've been I'm still obsessed with the especially the two the two newer films, the 2017 and 2019 yep. films. I don't really like them that much, but I've been obsessed with them <laughs> and thinking about them and going over them in my mind. So it's this weird love hate relationship. I think they're well made films. The 1990 version has its charm. Yeah, and there's a couple actors that stand out, but it's it, that one really, really shows its age. But the two newer films, really well made films, good polish, you know, quality talent going in. Uh, something about them just didn't click for me. But I can't stop thinking about them. I'll get into why I think that is later on. But uh, okay. what did you think? Of, what your first impressions of uh, of these works of art? Yeah. So honestly, the the 2017 it. Uh, I absolutely love this film. Uh, I saw it in theaters mm. when it came out. I've watched it three or four times since. I'm <laughs> absolutely enamored with it. I thought it was just a really cool, like really nice, gory horror film with some decent scares, some incredible Im- imagery. The story is is fine, but I like the, there was the a coming story? of age. <laughs> the coming of age aspect with the kids. Uh, I loved the actors in this film were just incredible. The, the, these kids, like they're in their early teens, I think they just, they all did such a bang up job. The second movie, it chapter two, I was pretty disappointed with. Again, I saw that in theaters. I walked away thinking it was a very repetitive movie to what we got before. It was almost like I didn't need to see this in some way. And then the original TV movie, which of course I saw last, uh, just recently, was a very interesting curiosity. Uh, it's almost like revisiting some of the, this older content can be really difficult for me to look at in a critical way because it's it feels like a product of its time. And I think if I'd seen it in the 90s, it would I would have more of a nostalgic love for it. But I mean, Tim Curry's turn as It, the clown, was, was pretty incredible. Even though, uh, over... Just over three hours of runtime. He was only in the movie for about 20 minutes, I think. <laughs> but it, his performance was so good. It was that memorable. Um, I, I like. I did myself a disservice by not seeing it literally 25 years ago. Yeah. And I, and I feel like, like you're saying, the 1990 version feels almost, feels like, less, like, less like a film. Or it feels less like a film and it feels almost like a time capsule of like that 90s, or late 80s, early 90s kind of. Yeah. TV event. It's interesting. Yeah. It's like going back and watching. I love watching. Um, my mom was a habitual um, taper of movies and films once we got a VHS mm-hmm. player and you can start taping stuff. And for me, one of the interesting parts is going back and actually watching old commercials in between. Like, yeah, yeah. And it's like seeing, like, <laughs> it's really interesting how the, how the, that aesthetic has, has changed over time. It's a, it is like a, like a time capsule, right? It is kind of weird watching that, that, TV movie now because it's built with commercial breaks in mind. So yeah. when the scenes end and they kind of fade to black, I know there's a commercial break <laughs> right there. It's like, I should be able to get up from the couch for two minutes and, and go take care of like a new Drake or something. But you feel that. It, and of course you don't get the same sense in a movie. A, a movie has much more continuity in that way because there are no breaks. And I can't even, I can't stop thinking about that on new content, even new 
miniseries and limited series on you know Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO Max. They're all designed without commercial breaks in them, right? So going back to a piece of content like this, a, a three-hour movie that feels like it has a lot of breaks in it is is it's interesting. It is a I mean, at the end of the day, it's kind of a product of its time, but there's still some value in watching it in the context of, you know, fans of it. And if you're watching the new movies, I think you owe it to yourself to see the first uh, TV adaptation of this of this book. So what what kind of things did you want to talk about? What didn't work for you in the, in the new movies there? Did you kind of want to start with the first movie, the 2017 these kids are being harassed, not only in their home lives, but by this menacing clown who Alexander Skarsgård plays. Man, this, this guy is phenomenal. He's in all sorts of content. I thought his Pennywise I think was it's actually, really fantastic. I think it's Bill Skarsgård, isn't it? Is it Bill? Yes, sorry. You're right. It's Bill Skarsgård. <laughs> Alexander Skarsgård. Just go back and... Yes. <laughs> no. There's, there's a bunch of Skarsgårds. That's right? staying in. Alexander Skarsgård. He was Tarzan, isn't he? <laughs> Yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's Bill Skarsgård. He's going to be I here for I, posterity. I, yeah, I, I think I first started seeing him in, in acting in uh, the Netflix series Hemlock Grove. It was one of their first uh, Netflix series that oh, came out. So I believe he was. I also, think he does have a bit of that horror background. Yeah, he was also in a film I watched recently. I think called Naked Singularity with oh, what's his name Finn from Star Wars, um, Boyega, John Boyega, John Boyega, um, Naked Singularity, and it was like. Because I think he is still in the cultural consciousness. I think Bill Skarsgård is still associated with it. So to see him yeah. as another character um, is kind of is a little bit weird right now. It's it's almost like um, you know watching Robert Pattinson or um, Daniel Radcliffe or Emma Watson or somebody you know who are so strongly associated with those specific characters and having to you know them having to work uh, you know as performers and us having to work as audience members to kind of disassociate themselves from those characters that they're so ingrained with i think i yeah. think that um, bill Skarsgård might face that a little bit and that's a that's a tribute or it's a result of how great he was in that role he was super creepy i don't know why any kid would walk up to him for any reason like <laughs> it's completely bizarre but yeah yeah bill Skarsgård, amazing performance so yeah so well let's go with the positive first let's go with what worked yeah. for me about this movie i think what worked for you with it 2017 like you were saying cast amazing um i think this was when the world was just discovering um finn wolfhard is that the kid's name yeah wolfhard or wolfhard it is wolfhard wolfhard okay yeah finn wolfhard yes was this around the time before or after he had started in Stranger Things as well? Yeah, this is like a year or two after like the first season or two of Stranger okay. Things. Because for me, like that kid really stole the show. Yeah. To be fair, like that character Richie who's playing was given like a yeah. lot more to do. It's like the Bill Murray character in um it's Vankman in, in Ghostbusters, right? Ghostbusters, you, yeah. You're given these yeah. great lines and this great character to play with. Yeah. Um, but all the kids did a great job. Um the character the actor who played Beth and I can't remember her name who looked like Amy Adams more than Jessica Chastain, but still it was great, great casting all around anyway. But yeah, all, all the kids, um, I would like make as bold a claim as to say that this was the best group of child actors in this role since stand by me. Another um, Stephen King staple, but you had like Will Wheaton (laughs) and obviously like, um, you know, river Phoenix in that, um, movie back in the day 
what was it Kiefer Sutherland I think played the 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 bully in that one because like Stephen King movies yeah. about coming of age you got to have one kind of um, murderous bully it's mandatory yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> who like to bring some real menace either with a knife or a gun or some kind of weapon but like go above and beyond standard bullying um, so yeah the acting really amazing production value listen it was like yeah this is really well shot movie um, special effects were good but they were fantastic no <laughs> that's not the word i would use especially really the first one they were solid the second one they seemed a lot more janky especially near the end when they were had that big boss battle with um spoiler alert with spider clown man the special effect <laughs> it felt almost like um a video game cutscene where you had to like have a quick time event and press the press the x button to dodge <laughs> it really had that look and feel of, uh, yeah. of a video game almost <laughs> On um, the first movie, no, that was pretty much it, I guess. Those were all the positive for you. Well, I think the relationship yeah. building between the kids and the Losers Club, as they called themselves, who were the, these outsiders, yeah. I think that was really the strength of the movie, is that the character development and that interaction between those characters and between those actors, I think that's really the glue that kept the whole thing from unraveling completely. But yeah, for me, um, what didn't work in the first movie or do you want to do you want to jump in here, Brian? And anything else that you? Well, pause. I mean, I have nothing but positive things to say about the movie, and I think you honestly <laughs> really? touched upon a lot of them. I mean, I I love the feel of the movie. I love the atmosphere. I loved okay, like these kid actors were doing such a good job. Yeah. I loved the dialogue and the camaraderie they had with each other. Uh, I love that there was not a single like respectable adult in this world. See, that's... like every single adult that I think was part of the story because. Uh, yeah. Like, hear me out. Is that all the adults may remember things going on and they're all kind of like reprehensible, but you know, it is what it is. And it's like, it was really focused on these kids. Uh, I love the coming of age stuff. I mean, it has echoes of coming uh, of stand age by me yeah. with, for sure. Right. This is and, a great coming of age story. Yeah. And I think it's something Stephen King's probably written very well. And I mean, like you said, they, there's the bully and it's like, it's not just a bully. Like this is, like a villain, like he is doing horrible things to the point where it's shocking to see him. Like he's carving his initials into the, this kid's stomach. It's like, that's really horrific. Yeah. And I love the, the gore in this movie. I love the, like the over the top, like the blood fountain coming out of the sink. And it's just like, right, but I like, just loved all these things. Like a lot of that stuff. I think some of that was done practically, but like a lot of the, I'm just I'm just so tired of like the well, CGI. There's a lot of CGI in violence. the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's like if you're gonna build this as like a modern horror masterpiece, it's gonna have CGI in it. They all do. No, cut out the CGI. Give me real buckets of blood. I want Evil Dead Two, fountains of blood shooting out of the wall, a real <laughs> corn syrup dyed red. Yeah, yeah. Like that's okay. That to me is like a horror film. Not uh, so as you get CG, like weightless CGI. Like what really bothered me the whole time was these stupid balloons. They were so obviously CGI the whole time. And like some of those scenes is like, sure, it'd be really hard to get balloons to do what you want to do. They're notoriously. Balloons don't act. (laughs) Yeah. Balloons are notoriously tricky to work with. They're very high strung. Um, (laughs) Where's the balloon wranglers? Yeah. Where were they during the production? But but some of those scenes were just like a balloon moving across the room or something. It's like, 
why is this a terrible yeah. CGI balloon? <laughs> it's obviously CGI. It doesn't look real at all. I didn't get that at all. Like the like you're Took talking about specifically about a scene like in the library. There's the balloon moving. Why not have it? Like in the you background, can make a real balloon move across there. It just looks so hilariously. I terrible. thought it looked fine. I thought it looked fine. I thought all the CGI, I thought uh, there were some really creative uses of the CGI, like the morphine of the Pennywise cloud into these different monsters and stuff and like his head in impossible positions. Like what about that scene where he's coming out of the fridge, right? Was that 100% uh, practical? Like did they get a contortionist to do this? Was it I a bit of a mix of CGI? I believe Corridor Crew did a breakdown on this. Again, another shout out to Corridor yeah. Crew. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think friends of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, only in our fan fiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think there was actually a contortionist who did some mocap for that to get some of the yeah, capture yeah. down, but it was largely done. Yeah. Like that scene was pretty solid in terms of CGI, but I think it suffered from the same thing that a lot of movies suffer from where like just, I don't know. The camera, it didn't feel like it was following a real thing, right? Like if you were to set up the camera and follow something around, it just felt like, I don't know. It felt to me there's just something, I don't know. Okay. That well, wasn't, um, it didn't have a whole lot of weight to it, but the scene itself was cool. Yeah. Like when it came out of the fridge and it untwisted itself, the clown oh, that it was is amazing. It, yeah. Yeah. It was like, yeah. that was really unfriendly. It was a really uncanny, right? Cause it's like, it looks human, but it's not quite human. And like you're saying, it's yeah. like, yeah, that's, that stuff is genuinely unsettling <laughs> um, for sure. But is it, uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, all right. Agree to disagree on the effects. I think they all looked pretty awesome. <laughs> the effects were better um, on the first one than the second one. I will give it that. Um, the second one, you can really tell. It's like, I don't know if they just like stopped caring or if the budget went down yeah. significantly for special effects. The One of the negatives that pops out for me in the first one is the use of jump scares like uh, horror movies and jump scares you know go head in hand right and it's all about a movie's usage and earning the ability to use a jump scare because i think they can be really effective but here it really felt like it was overdone but i'm kind of willing to move past it because i was enjoying everything else so much that like every scene was like like had one of these jump scares and I hate it when they put in like those, those musical cues, oh, like, yeah. like a regular scene that just has like a, an intense punch to the score or just like a really horrific sound effect that is just going to sort of make you jump a little bit. You have no, no option but to react to that. That stuff is a little overdone in this movie. That's the main criticism I'd have of the film. And I think the other criticism I'd have is that, uh, and we talked about this while we were watching the movie, is that uh, yeah, Finn Wolfhard's character did not seem to get enough of a backstory into like him being terrified, right? All the other ones had elements, fats, yeah. like specific scenes and like different, like a, an arc to them encountering their fear when he doesn't get any of those scenes. They saved it, his they're for just the sequel. Ask him, they saved his for the sequel, which, <laughs> you know, it is what it is, but for the first film to stand on its own, which I think it can do yeah. fine without the sequel's usage, but it definitely felt like something was cut out. And when I'm looking into this movie, I see the very first cut was almost four hours long. And then the initial like director's cut was just about three hours. And then we get like a nice two and a half hour film. I feel like there's another 15, 20 minutes of more character scares that I think would have been a little more effective to give every single character their due uh, because some were a little more uh, favored than others. But honestly, I mean, that's just, that's just how it's going to be basically. 
But those are those are the elements that didn't really work for me. You want to talk about other elements? Or yeah, did you talk you, about stuff? That, yeah, why this yeah. film failed um, at telling a story. Um, okay. Why <laughs> and why everything for you? you why yeah. everything you like is <laughs> is is terrible, Brian? <laughs> um, because there wasn't a story. This felt like a bunch of scenes that were stitched together, but it felt like maybe if we if they released like this three or four hour cut, a it felt like we were missing connective tissue between scenes in terms of character development, in terms of narrative development. Cause a lot of times mm-hmm. it, would, it would just cut to another scene and I'd be just like, uh, what, what the heck just happened to be like four months have passed. And like, no, like and you're not going to acknowledge anything in between here. Um, you're not going to acknowledge what happened in the, in the last scene. Um, and part of that is due to the runtime. Part of it's due to, they cut a lot of content from the novel as well. So I haven't read it, but I was yeah. doing some reading and research. Um, one of the things that bugged me, there were a bunch of things that bugged me about this that they never yeah. addressed in any way. And it was so frustrating. One of the things is like Pennywise, the clown, this vampiric alien entity that could take on any shape, any form. It could attack people apparently in their dreams, in their homes, anywhere and everywhere. And yep. um, why didn't it just kill these kids right away? It was killing kids left, right, and center. What was special about these seven kids in the Losers Club? And apparently in the book, it actually explains that, where there's this um, cosmic deity who's essentially granting them protection. It's like, okay, is it a great explanation? I'll leave that up to audience members to decide. But it's like, this, <laughs> it's apparently like the great, the cosmic turtle. Weird stuff. I yes. think that was during Stephen King's cocaine phase. But at least it's like, okay... So there's a greater battle of kind of good and evil going on. And these kids have some kind of protection. It's like, okay, like things like that, like leaps in logic is like, why is this clown just not straight up killing people? Or like, I think they touch on it briefly. It's like, why is he terrorizing these children? I think it, uh, there's one line near the end of the movie in the final battle where it's like, oh, your fear makes you tastier or something. It makes you taste better yeah. or I think in the second one, it's like, I'm feeding. He says something about feeding on their fear. Or maybe it's in the first one, too. I don't know. They kind of get mixed up. But it's like, get it straight. Are you feeding on the fear? Or is the fear like marinating the kids so they taste better? It's never clear why this thing is doing what it's doing. Um, and then the whole thing with the with all the adults being like pedophilic or just plain like oh, abusive yeah. or yeah. evil. It's like it left kind of an unsettling feeling, which I suppose was the point. But if they would have explained that, I think in the novel as well, maybe in that four hour long director's cut, it explained as like, Oh, there's something almost like a supernatural spell. And like the town itself is almost like an entity. Yeah. And the, all the adults are essentially like larger parts of this entity. And they're having their, there's, there's some influence that it is exerting over the parents. Cause it felt weird yeah. that like every parent was some kind of, weird overprotective or abusive individual it's probably pretty fair to say not all the adults were bad but the one the movie focused only on the bad ones including the bad parents there's some parents we never got to see at all and it's probably safe to say they were just normal people who were just raising these kids and i mean all the kids are pretty good right the people's values have to come from somewhere so there there must be some goodness there but i i do agree that if that explanation was in there and then it might have helped a little bit and i think what makes it difficult is like you're talking the cosmic side is that too much for an audience to really get into for well like a movie like this i mean that's already like two and a half hours long this what we're calling a quote-unquote movie 
which is really just a series of random scenes where like <laughs> this kid goes and has something scary happen to them and they run away. Then it cuts to the next kid and they have something scary to them and they run away. Then it cuts to the next kid and they have something scary to happen to them and they run away. And then they're in a, all in a haunted house together going to fight this supernatural entity. I was like, that's not, that's just a series of vignettes. They're not even tied together. Like there's no, there's no resolution to these things. Um, like, oh, it's supposed to take on their deepest, darkest fears. It's like, is Eddie's deepest, darkest fear really just that random painting in his father's room? Like it doesn't represent something deeper than that. They never delve in like none of this makes sense. It's all surface level, um, kind of yeah. like like you said, like jump scare nonsense. Where it's like there's nothing deeper or more meaningful about this, but they're trying to play it off like it's deeper and more meaningful. Like it's oh, it's taking on their deepest fears. It's like really in the second film, like Richie's deepest fear was Paul Bunyan. Like that's that's what his deepest fear was really. <laughs> Honestly, I think he says in this movie that his deepest fear is clowns. But then it's like, well, why does he get chased by a giant Paul Bunyan in the next movie? It's like, it is, none of this makes any kind of sense as soon as you start breaking it down. I'm not, I'm not asking for this to be Shakespeare. I'm not asking for this to be Scorsese. But on some level, in your own world that you're creating, things have to yeah. make, like, in there has to be an internal logic. There has to be enough connective tissue. Like, right now, it's just watching it. And it's so frustrating because all these, all these performers, all these actors are giving it 110% amazing performances from everybody like especially when the kids are battling this thing and you can tell like it's hard to act afraid and these kids you can tell that they're they're selling it they're yeah. selling it hard man they're doing such an amazing job but all it is is like a series of like oh yeah um can you guys see this blood it's like yep adults can't do you Let's think clean it up are you gonna explore this any further uh no we're just gonna drop it it was like nothing they put out all these all these um Chekhov's guns, Chekhov's machine gun. They're flying left, right, and center. <laughs> like Chekhov's bullets were littering this thing. And like there was essentially what happened was there was all these loose threads and nothing was tied together. And it was just like, it was so think... frustrating watching this thing um, because it was like, yeah. this is a great scene on its own. And then jumped to another scene that had no connection to the last scene. And then it was a great scene in and of itself. And then they jumped to another random scene and it was a great scene in and of itself, but like it's not telling a cohesive story. Do you think that part of that, um, like going back to your to your comments about how the thing the these kids are most afraid of doesn't really make any sense, right? Do you think that's representative of like how as kids we would really demonize single elements and become super afraid of them? And this movie was kind of like commenting on saying, yeah, you know, there's a painting. It's a creepy painting. This kid would make would be very afraid of it for no real logical reason. And I mean, I, I've been afraid of things when I was a kid in that same way. <laughs> and this movie is, is giving them something to like really be afraid of and like facing those fears as they move into adulthood. Right. It's like, they are kids who are just afraid of things. Um, and now they have more things to be afraid of and move forward past their fears. That would be cool if they made, if they like, talked about that in the movie at all which they don't but to that point there's a an infamous scene in the original it which you're probably aware of in the book that is where at one point after defeating um the evil clown entity vampiric alien it thing essentially beth the one female character of the group um she has sex with each of the other members of now for what i understand that happened before they beat the 
super clown because they she thought they were all gonna die in that fight. No, I is think why what happened was like gave, they fought it that. and they were trying to find their way out of the sewers, but there was still some supernatural something happened. But they needed to essentially like this bond they needed between them in order to find their way out of the sewers. Anyway, I happened to Okay. Well, neither one of us have read the book, so we can't say definitively, but yeah. But anyway, I was ahead. I happened to be reading this so somebody posted that past because it's a really weird concept to to put on page and 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 why it happened. And it's a good thing they didn't adapt this in the movie. In that passage, I happened to read that somebody posted it on a Reddit thread because they were talking about how weird that was, and somebody posted the actual text is like it's weirder than you think. But in that passage, um, in Beth's internal monologue, as um, in between having sex with all of her six closest friends at the age of what, 14 or something, yep. 13 or 14, um, she's talking about equating it with, with, with sex, essentially. So like the scary, so the scary thing, the un, unspoken fear that they have is not just, not just sex in and of itself, but like that, that maturity, right? Becoming adults that impending mortality, right? So if they would have explored that theme in the movie, like there was something underlying where they talked about, it's like, oh, have you had, have you done it yet? Right? Mm -hmm. Meaning, have you done sex? Where like it was this also this stand in word for sex, but like having sex was this, essentially it was this marker of, you know, this delineating, you know, childhood from, from adulthood. Well, that's it. Exactly. It's like, that's the turning point that they were going yeah, for. Is that but like sex is becoming an adult, right? Yeah. That, that's not the only thing, but in that, in that, in Stephen King's telling of it in the original novel, that was, it was metaphorical. Like having sex was metaphorical of that, the journey to become adults, but like there was nothing similar thematically in the movies like obviously they're not going to show a bunch of 13 year old kids having sex um you know this isn't the 90s uh they're not gonna do that again well let's just say in the 90s they don't have that in the movie either so it was no but i think wasn't yeah. there a movie kids where they essentially they, they it was very kind of sexualized and they were like, all the kids were really young. yeah well, there is yeah well for sure there's that type of content out there but it's like smartly like in the 1990 production they avoid yeah they avoid the smartly like Again, this was, I yeah. think, in, in Stephen King's um, cocaine phase where he wrote this. But this is the thing. In the movie, it's just like surface level scary stuff where Eddie, yeah, he's a germaphobe. He's afraid of disease. So he gets the diseased man chasing him. Um, but that's never, ex it's never explored in any depth. It's all just like so surface level. But the movie is trying to make you think like it's something deep and, and thoughtful and provocative. And that's the thing that... I think for me, so the really, I, I think for what you're saying here is like the only way this could work is taking your approach of the Avengers style where each of these kids is like given one movie a piece before encountering like <laughs> the, the the summer of this, you know, 1990 or whatever yeah, year it's in I don't know. for them all to get together. I think it would have worked better as um, a limited series where they had time to explore each of the characters in more depth to like take some of that. Well, that's content. always an issue in today's content is like, does this work better as a TV series? And especially in today's TV landscape where these are movie production quality ever, stuff. Yeah. Ever and since the Sopranos it, came out right? and kind of changed the landscape yeah, of what's yeah. possible on TV. I'm just like, yeah, TV used to be like the bad word among, you know, it's like, yeah. if you work in TV, your career's over. It's like now people are going to like, they're begging to be on TV shows because they have like funding and actual writers and, and craftsmen throughout yeah. them, right? And I know you're not watching the the new MCU or sorry, a DC Disney Plus 
TV shows, but there's a lot of conversation going on between should this have been a movie or should it have been a TV series, right? Because it's oh, like yeah. they have kind of a similar production quality to it. And there's filler in some TV shows, and then there's not enough stuff in the movies. And this is kind of the same thing where you probably could have expanded this into truly, like when they're adapting in 1990, an eight-episode miniseries that would be two hours a piece or something. You would get so much more character background. It's a limitation of the media. Potentially. Or make it a trilogy then. I know it kind of worked in two parts because like adult and kid, and that's how they broke it out. But like, if you have that much story to tell where they had like a four hour cut and they had to cut so much story that it affected the actual final product in terms of like legibility and like being able just to follow logically what was going on, make it a trilogy <laughs> well, this is the thing. and delve into these issues. Like what's the actual, like delve into the trauma that people are experiencing. Cause I mean, spoilers for the second one, but one or one kid as an adult is so afraid to go back. He kills himself before yeah. he goes, even gets a chance to go back to dairy and fight this Stanley, thing again. Right. Yeah. It's like, that's, Obviously, they're suffering from some crazy traumas. Like, that's an interesting topic to explore. Like, not just like fear, but like PTSD or like how that has an effect on you psychologically. And they drop that thread immediately. I am curious how much more of those threads are explored in an 1100 plus page yeah. book that Stephen King wrote, right? I mean, there's a lot of content. We're talking about one movie where there were only the kids' side of it. Yeah. There's a whole second movie that's over two hours long. <laughs> that's all the adults. And it has more kid flashbacks of like their childhood. And it's like, there's a lot of content. Do you think the the movie, I mean, we're, we're talking about what could have been or should have been. <laughs> Do you think they could have or should have made the parallel story, just like the 1990 version where it's sort of, we're focused on the adults and we're in parallel, we're being told the stories of them when they're kids and sort of like add a bit of context and flashback to those scenes that maybe make more sense to uh, develop their characters. Do you think, you know, we should have seen two or three movies in that format, or do you think it was a a big mistake to just do one and one, like the children and then the adults, one after another movie? Because did the 1990 movie do it any better in that way? Like, was it a bit more coherent story for you? Well, I think if you were going to do this as a um, a series with you know a couple a couple seasons in it maybe like you know do three seasons six episodes a piece yeah um then it makes sense to have those like oh then it makes sense in this episode we're going to flash back and forth between say richie's story as a kid and as an adult and see like the connective tissue between the fear and the trauma that he experienced as a kid and how that's affected him as an adult coming back so you can draw those stories and have those episodes per person and have the revelations come through and it's like the whole thing is like um, it's a coming of age story. It's a story about you know friendship and camaraderie, and that kind of power of friendship and love winning out over over evil, which is um, common theme. If you look at something like the Dark Tower, a common theme is a close group of friends coming together, and it's the power of the bond, the special bond between um, those friends, really becoming um, family. And that's that's really the power, and that gives them the strength to overcome the evil yeah. in the end, right? So to explore really, you know, in depth the bonds between these characters and them having to, you know, cope with their fear and and face their fears in a more substantial way, and say is like, oh well, what's the actual fear? I think it touched like with Eddie, and you see his mom and how she's overprotective and how he's got hypochondria. 
and and it, so kind of delved into his story a little bit. But I really wish they would have like explored that a little bit more in depth. And it's like the yeah. the psychological ramifications of that overbearing mother figure, um, which were like oh, I was so like it was a very surface level. But like there's a lot to delve into, and yeah. like there's some there's some meat um, potentially they could have added to this sandwich. But right now it feels like a couple pieces of plain bread stacked together. That's the movie hit for me. <laughs> like it's fair enough. Let's move into the second movie. Um, I I don't have nearly as much to say about it. And I think it's probably safe to say, like, this is me projecting my opinions uh, on you as well as that. It was a even bigger disappointment. Like it it was a disappointment from the first one. It was worse than the first movie, the 2019 It Chapter 2. Yeah, I put them on par. They were both. They were both equally as bad for you. Though I'm not going to say as bad because like, um, well, I'll give you the rating later on. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I didn't rate, they were, these weren't the worst movies I'd ever seen, but it was no, no. They failed in in different ways. Um, the other thing they got right yeah. again, casting. Um, they got an amazing cast of characters again. I think Bill yeah. Bill Hader as as a an adult Bill Hader. He, he got again. He got, got the, Jessica Chastain. Yeah, you got uh, who else is there? James McAvoy. James McAvoy. I mean, that, that guy can do anything he wants. There's, I, I can't think of any other names off the top of my head, but there was a lot of talent in this movie as well. Oh yeah. Again, casting and acting, not the, the issue here at all. All those, all the people were perfectly cast. You could like also props to the casting directors for perfectly matching the child actors and the adult actors. Yeah. Well, it's always difficult. Cause I remember seeing like an interview, this is probably like 20 years ago. And they were talking about how it can be really difficult to match them up and, have a consistency between the two characters and it's, you can't have the child actor trying to emulate the adult actor. It's like, they're just getting started acting. It's like they are doing what they do. And it's like, it's up to the adults to try and mimic some of that behavior that the kids were putting into their performances. Right. And I think they did a fantastic job here. I mean, tell it to the kid from project Adam. He got Ryan Reynolds nailed. man. Oh my, yeah. You know, (laughs) you're a, you're a hundred percent right there. That kid. (laughs) What's his name? That kid's got Oscars in his future. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I don't even care. I want to see that guy. I want to see that kid just doing like an hour long of just him, like riffing on Ryan Reynolds characters. (laughs) The, (laughs) one of the weirdest things I remember seeing chapter two in theaters and walking out thinking, that was pretty disappointing. And I remember my biggest complaint was it just felt so repetitive. And I think the structure of having the tor- stories told in parallel would have been more effective because the adult stories, the adult story here is that they've all moved away from Derek <laughs> and they've all forgotten everything about their childhood. And when they receive the call to come back, they all sort of instantly remember how horrible things were, but they don't remember all the details yet. So it's them coming back to town and slowly remembering they have to go on like a personal quest to go find their horrible memories, right? And then they have to go do the exact same thing before and go overcome their fears, which they already did when they're kids, <laughs> and defeat the evil clown monster again. So it felt like the exact same movie, but with with less interesting things going on. Right. I don't know. So you hit the nail on the head. I think one of the fundamental flaws in It Chapter 2 and trying to tell the story is you're trying to tell a story about a bunch of people who don't remember anything yeah, about what happened. Brutal. And they're trying to discover all the stuff that you, that we as the audience already know from the first movie. So we're trying yeah. to watch the, the characters long ago. trying to catch up to where we are. And then the movie Could just ends. Could you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine if like the first movie, like it chapter one, 
Only the Kid story was told in 1990. If it literally 27 years go by in real time, we get a follow-up to that movie. It's just like, oh, oh, if you haven't seen that movie in 20 years, this would feel pretty fresh. Somebody but no call Richard waited. Linklater. <laughs> get, <laughs> right? Get him to make and that's the guy who would it. do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that would have been interesting, but obviously, you know, not in our reality <laughs> here. But that, that's sort of where we're ending up with is like less than probably a year and a half, two years, we get chapter two with a very strange yeah. conceit there. And then when, especially, I mean, you're watching these movies for the first time, literally one night is chapter one and the second night is chapter two. The effect would have been even, would, would be even heightened for, for you in that, I would think. Yeah. All of a sudden it's just like, well, like I know all this stuff already and I'm watching these characters figure out stuff that I already know as yeah. an audience member. It's like, well, why? Like I can, I can go to the bathroom for a couple hours and come back to the ending when you guys caught up to me. And this is where I would really indulge in uh, your issues when, when you talked about the first one where it doesn't get into like the Bayer universe. It doesn't explain like possibly the cosmic deity protecting this group of like the Losers Club. I think this is the movie that should have done more of that stuff. Yeah. And it didn't do any more world building. And that's why I think I like the first one is I don't need the world building in that movie. But the second one, we've got almost three hours of runtime here again. They could have spent more time talking about the greater things instead of them literally showing the same structure, the same fears, the same scares over again. That's, this movie really did not work for me on, on that level. Yeah, some of the totems, like I think, was it Stanley who who was the one who committed suicide before he came back? Yeah. Um, and his, his totem was something that we didn't even see in the first movie. It was some random thing that was told in a flashback in the second movie, the shower cap or whatever, to keep the spiders yeah. out of their hair in their secret yeah. hideout. It's like there was a was uh, like, secret hideout uh, that wasn't explored. It's like, oh, is like, this is this 20 minutes of content that was cut from the first movie? That hideout, that should have been in the very first strange. movie. Like, that's a pretty yeah. big thing. And it would have been easy just to have like a couple second scenes, like, or not a couple second scenes, but have one scene in the original movie where like, oh, we're going to build this hideout and hang out. And then it'd be so cool in the second movie to, to see... The, the hideout again, right? It's like build those yeah. locations. But I think what you're saying in terms of what worked well in the 1990 version worked well, I think, having not read the novel, but switching between those two perspectives, telling the same parallel, st- not the same, but parallel story of the adult and child versions side mm-hmm. by side. I think that really works because you have, here's these people who have amnesia for, again, the movie doesn't explain why or just in the vaguest terms doesn't delve into like the the memory loss of the incredible power that it has reaching across <laughs> at least the continents of the of, of North America it can influence people that far away yeah in terms of you know they're trying to get their memory back and then they, oh you do a flashback to when they were kids so like as they're discovering like rediscovering their childhood we're discovering it along with them right that makes sense yeah. narratively and then we see the connective tissues like oh why did um, you know, Richie throw up as soon as he got that phone call from, um, yeah. what was his friend again who stayed behind in, in Derry there? Um, oh, I can't believe I'm blanking. One of the most important characters here. He kept watching Derry for 27 years after everybody else. Mike. Mike. Mike, of course. Yeah. Mike called him. He had this gut reaction. He didn't remember him. But like when yeah. Mike calls everybody, it kind of triggers something subconsciously and they all immediately come yeah. back because of the pact they made when they were kids. But something psychological, like deep down, they all get this fear, not even, even though they don't remember each other specifically, but then explore that as, as you know, as like Bill and Ben are remembering their childhoods 
and they're and we're taking that journey along with them. That's an interesting movie structure. That's an interesting narrative structure. That's something that will keep us engaged. And then you're seeing that connective yeah. tissue between, oh, here's this fear as a kid. And how does that fear translate to me as an adult? Is it going to be the same fear or is it going to be, here's an, I've outgrown that fear and I've developed, you know, I, I fear different things as an adult now, right? I have different anxieties, different yeah. stresses, or like see how that trauma has affected me even subconsciously. Like looking at like childhood trauma and exploring that, like you don't have to go super in depth, but like consult a child psychologist. That's an interesting story. That's an interesting theme. That's something that's the meat in your sandwich to explore um, where you're trying to, yeah. if they, if their journey was trying to not maybe as the childhood journey, you're, they're overcoming their fears. And then their adult journey is overcoming that trauma that they experienced as kids. It's like, yeah, that's an interesting, compelling story, but we get none of that beyond surface level. Again, you're saying exactly what you're saying. They're repeating the exact same story structure, whether this, everybody goes off on their own. Pennywise shows up, scares them. They run away. They yeah. find their totem. Um, which is they're supposed to use to, to in some ritual to defeat it, which is not even clear if the totems were even necessary or not because it just seems superfluous to to the final the, like the climax of the movie they all burn their totems and the monster still came after them right yeah so that was pretty much the whole movie mission was a was kind of a bust there was no payoff from yeah. that in the books too I was reading um online as well people were saying that that Stanley killing himself. Um, actually, because the power came from all seven of them and the bond that all seven of them mm -hmm. shared was that him killing himself at the beginning, because there's only six left of that circle, that caused problems. And that's why they couldn't defeat it right away. Yeah. That's why they had to build up power again. So like, there were like all these little details that would have been simple to put into the movie that they just completely lost. I don't know who was adapting the screenplay from the, from the novels. Yeah. I'm going to say they did not do a very good job. I'm sorry. It was not great. It was not a great adaptation. Yeah, I think chapter two really exposed the the issues of adapting this style, like this this content, like the book, into the way they did. And I kind of wonder if they did it just in a as a reason to sort of set themselves apart for the 1990 TV movie. Oh, probably the TV movie worked so much better in that parallel story structure than than having the two movies separate. For me, the first movie really worked. I really enjoyed it, but it was almost more of like a standalone movie that I enjoyed. And then chapter two comes out and it's like, no, this is, I'm not having this at all, <laughs> right? It's just like, I, I definitely recognize the, the the issues of chapter two. And it's like, I much prefer the story structure as a whole for the 1990 it. And yeah. I really don't have much, that was one of the much positive to say about chapter two. Yeah, well, like that, the story structure was one of the very few, few, few things that worked for me about the 1990 <laughs> version, keeping that that story structure intact of the, you know, the parallel stories of the the children and adult versions of the same characters. The one thing I did like, I would pay good money for a movie of the adult Richie and Eddie characters just going and reacting to scary stuff happening. <laughs> I wanted a whole movie of them <laughs> reacting to like that, that crazy scary dog. <laughs> right. Yeah. If HBO max was around, you would have a spin off series of just those two guys. It'd be four or five episodes. And yeah, that, I want them just like Scooby-Doo style adventures where they're going to haunted houses. And just have those two react to some, some scary, scary stuff like that. Oh my that's God. the thing too. Is like those little, um, little kind of cute little sparks where like where Pennywise had this weird twisted sense of humor, like those three doors where it's like, 
you know, yeah, yeah. scary, very scary, scary and not scary at all. I was like, yeah. that's really kind of neat little touches. Like, yeah, like that where he's messing with them, but he's like, okay, this, this creature, whatever it is, there's some, there's a playfulness there. There's a sense of humor, right? It's like, there's, yeah, it's feeding on children again. Also, while I'm thinking about it, we all float down here. What the hell does that even mean? So all these, all those corpses of all the victims were floating in this giant above his skull pile, his skull thrown there. Yeah. Why was that was never explored? How anti gravity was working there? Is like why was he doing that? What, what was that like the engine to a spaceship or something? Or like why was he had telekinesis? He was just using that power to you know, float the victims around. Yeah. What was going on? Why? I mean, I, why? Why do we all float down here? That makes no sense at all. It's supposed to be a scary line. I was just like, are you going to explain ever what the hell that means? We all float down here. It's like okay, we float like on the water. It's like no, in the air. But why? It's uh it's. I, I'm so a big stupid. believer that we don't need to have everything explained, especially something like that. Absolutely, but we have to have something explained at some point, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fine. But it's like something like that. I enjoy theorizing on what what it was, and it's like here for me, my interpretation of the floating was like this monster needs to eat, right? And he does feed on some of the kids right away, but he needs to preserve them because he only comes out every twenty seven years. Again, for reasons unknown or possibly only explained in the book, I I really don't care which one. But for me, it was like making them float was like just kind of a way of preserving them in a refrigerator. But you know what, what I mean? Was it's this just technology it, that he built. Was it him just wasting who cares? energy? I care who cares? because they don't give us anything. They don't give us a single clue about how any of it works. I don't mind theorizing about this. But who we're talking about cosmic deities here. How could we possibly I'm just talking about, expect them to explain every little thing? I don't expect them to explain every little thing. I expect them to give me enough clues, leave it ambiguous, but have an internal logic in in your I world. I got enough clues out of it. There was nothing in there. I didn't find a single I mean, thing. we we had the history of this thing being hundreds of years old. And he has technology and powers that old. are far beyond our comprehension. Does he have so technology? Who? Where? What technology? There's nothing there. Is it just okay? Power slash technology. If you really want to get specific on the language of it, I mean, it really doesn't matter if you ask me. Maybe the book will give you some answers. I'll bet. Yeah, I don't want to have to read a thousand page book to understand this movie. Nothing about this makes sense. Maybe there's, there's given... like an encyclopedia, Wikipedia <laughs> article for you to like really get behind the science of the uh, the it. Uh, it was so. Fr- <laughs> this is the thing too. Is like I wanted to theorize about stuff, like the deadlights, but like, well, what 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 happened to imagination and stuff? Well, I mean, what happened what? to like re- like respecting your audience? I don't know. What happened to like narrative structure and telling a story? <laughs> I'll, like. These are all very good questions, Brian. <laughs> like the deadlights. Why didn't why didn't he kill Bev when he had a chance? His motivations made no sense. He was preserving her. Scene to scene. She made her float. For what reason? Why though? Like how much energy did he, you know how much energy it would take to float a human body for 27 years? Does he get that? Or are you talking science <laughs> now or are you talking about supernatural powers? I mean, what which one do you want? I want, I don't know. I want them to tell me what they're talking about because the, I don't think the, like you, you want him to explain that like maybe he's feeding off the earth's core and like the geothermal energy to get these powers or something. I would like, I would have liked the (laughs) filmmakers to have put at least a quarter of as much thought into this as you and I put into this within the past half an hour, which they clearly did not. All right. So moving on to 1998, because, I mean, I think your your desire for that is kind of hopeless, but that's fine. Uh, 1998. You sit there in your wrongness, uh, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, what do you want to say about the 1990s version? I mean, this was both our first experience with watching this movie. For me, it's like it definitely felt like a product of its time, but I really had respect for the parallel story structure, had a lot of respect for Tim Curry's performance as Pennywise the Clown. I thought it was incredible, and I, I loved the way he, like, injected that humor into it and, like, scariness. With, like, he maintained this character so well for a character that's only in it for, like, 2% of the movie. It was pretty gnarly, and the biggest standout for me is this is a TV movie from the 90s. It is based yeah. on all the restrictions from TV. <laughs> and I was reading about this, and it's like one of the restrictions that they couldn't show blood coming out of an orifice. So they couldn't have like somebody vomiting blood, for instance. They can't show someone's nose splurting blood. So they had to find like different ways and just like basically have things happen off screen. Like at, at the beginning, when the child uh, loses the boat in, into the sewer, I mean, very iconic. Yeah. In the modern one, his arm is chewed off. And this one, it's just inferred in dialogue that he's his arm was missing right it's just like we don't get elements like that so we get a very sanitized version of this but we still have a fairly compelling piece of movie tv content that i thought was pretty decent um what do you think of 1998 i think yeah if you put it in in the context of being a 1990 tv movie kind of say i will say it is what it is <laughs> it is what it is yeah i mean the structure was good i mean you had like eric you got actors like Harry Anderson in there. Um, people might know from Night Court, or people might be wondering what the heck I'm talking about if you're not of a certain age. Well, <laughs> um, yeah. had like, you had a young Seth Green in here. Young Seth Green. Who, even though we were talking about throughout the movie, I could not place his voice in the movie. <laughs> like, I couldn't hear it. I knew that that person was Seth Green, but I just couldn't see it. It was so, I'm so ingrained with uh, maybe the Mass Effect Seth Green yeah. voice fit. By the way, yeah, all this all this discussion about who the best Joker is, best Joker is Seth Green. <laughs> so for all you Mass Effect fans out you're, there, you're not wrong. You're not. Um, but also, um, obviously, John Ritter um, was also in there as well. Um, John Ritter, known from Jonathan Brandis. Yeah, it's, it was kind of sad though too, watching like because John Ritter and Harry Anderson are both both past yeah. now. So it was like watching it from from our perspective now in 2022 is like there was a little level of there was a little level of sadness watching some of these great. Um, you know, yeah, comedic actors sure. who had, who had passed. It was also, I think one of your favorites from one of your favorite uh, TV shows there. <laughs> and Eto tool. Yeah. From Smallville. The, she played uh, Clark's mom in Smallville. Yeah. She was great to see in uh, an earlier role there. <laughs> There's, there was all sorts of familiar faces here. It was, it was really, it was really neat there. And uh, before we go into things, I forgot, I looked at the uh, filming locations of all of these movies all three movies were filmed in Canada. Uh, the 1990 version is uh, Vancouver production, and uh, the two new movies were filmed mostly in Port Hope, Ontario, which is just down the street oh. from basically in the middle for both of us. Yeah. So next time you're traveling, just take a, a dive over into uh, Port Hope. Probably recognize like the city hall, uh, a bunch of these different landmarks that they filmed all around the uh, Greater. We Toronto know our area. next road trip now. Um, yeah, side, yeah. Complete side note, but I love how on the Scream Factory. Um, editions of, of horror movies there was this um, special feature where this i can't remember the the dude's name but he was he would essentially go to all the locations they filmed at oh, okay and some of them especially for like um the david cronenberg stuff where he filmed in like yeah yeah downtown toronto and stuff which is in our neck of the woods and it's like this is a doable we could actually go and see where some of these movies are filmed so it's kind of yeah kinda, those are the kind of special features i wish they would throw on on the discs and stuff to see uh yeah, see, like, yeah, yeah Port Hope is like, of course, go down there. So what else? Uh, 
what, what else do we want to say about in 1990 or what were some of the things that didn't work for you? I, I don't really have a lot of commentary on this one aside from just the, yeah, it was a- just looking when I'm watching it, I was just basically looking for the differences and all the differences were just like censorship. I felt yeah, things was, weren't as intense. It was a pretty bloodless it just, movie. It wasn't super scary. We read more of like a coming of age film, like some of the, like some of the child actors, there were some solid ones. Like the guy who played, I think Bill was really good. I think he was end up, he played in Sequest um, eventually. Yes. Um, some of the child actors were not great. Uh, some of the adult actors weren't. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's the other thing I, we talked about while we were watching a movie that I wanted to talk about here, just or at least just mentioning is like the quality of the acting, like especially the kids. It, it's almost like there's like schools popping up earlier. It's just like there's more opportunities for these kids to get ahead in, in starring in movies and, and TV and different yeah, pieces and of I think, content. I think that's a function more of the like the budget of the film, which like you can't you yeah, can't yeah. do like a nationwide casting calls. Like you gotta if you're filming in Vancouver, it's like essentially you're you're casting yeah. within the greater Vancouver area kind of. You get a couple big name people like um Well it's you know, John Ritter, but Yeah. Well, that's the thing, and the trivia is neat, and I mean, all of it's coming from like IMDb trivia here for me, but it's like, yeah, John Ritter was apparently dying or itching to get into uh, a piece of Stephen King adaptation, oh, nice. which is like he finally got into into it. Um, this director, uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, he's done Halloween 3, classic, oh, right? I love Halloween 3. And he's done the couple, he did Fright Night Part 2, which was a big meh for me, that's fine, but he didn't really do many other movies, he's probably more of a... Uh, of a TV guy. And it's like back then there was such a, a bigger divide between TVs and movies. It's like people did not go back and forth that much. Uh, not like they do now. I think also there's a different attitude with the studios now where like now the studios look, it's like, oh yeah, TV can put out quality, like high quality content. Or back then it's just like, let's just fill up three hours of time. Yeah. <laughs> I, yep. I think it shows, right? I think the attitude shows in terms of like, obviously production value is not going to be the same. Yeah, it's it for me. It wasn't a great production, uh, although like still with the understanding that they were doing the best they could with what they had to work with, obviously, yeah, and all yeah. like the like you're saying the censorship. I didn't really clue into me until like you pointed out. I think like halfway through, and it's like, oh yeah, they weren't allowed to use blood in this. It's like, yeah, like now yeah. now that you pointed it out, it's <laughs> like yeah, this is like the the least bloody, the least violent horror movie. Yeah, and the effects really take a hit because like. The whole spider monster at the end. I mean, it's all practical effects. I'm not sure it looked good at the day. I mean, it's impossible to say at this point. But, I mean, watching it in today's uh, uh, lens is, I mean, it's difficult. But I can appreciate the the realism of what they were doing. Um, Yeah. It's just. Although it's a testament to the 1990 (laughs) version that the 2019 version of the spider didn't look any better. So, I mean, I can't can't dock them the marks (laughs) for that, really. Oh, man. And I think I told my story about the kid being sucked through the pipe earlier. That was like the most <laughs> significant thing for, for me to happen in this movie. I was delighted to see it again no, on screen. There was, like, there was some really neat moments in that. There's some messed uh, up things happening there, yeah. Or that, that shower scene where he, um, I think, pops up to the drain. There's some like practical effects in terms of the warping of the floor and yeah, stuff. Yeah. It's like there's some actual kind of neat stuff. There's some creative stuff happening there, And then without a doubt. Yeah, there was some, there was some neat stuff, but it's like... It did not hold up for me. And maybe, again, if I had seen it as a kid, like I I remember watching the Stand miniseries as a kid and I love it now. And like, I'm fully willing to admit that part of that may be due to nostalgia. Um, but 
still, even if it is nostalgia, the fact that I didn't see it when I was younger uh, means that I don't yeah. have the nostalgia factor to, to help boost it up a little bit. That's pretty fair. One thing I want to highlight in the ending and how they defeated it in the 1990 miniseries compared to the It Chapter 2, it felt really weird where in the It Chapter 2, 2019, the way they defeated It was the same way they defeated him in the 2017 version, which is like to stop believing in him, I guess, right? Just like, yep. But then they were like calling him names and essentially bullying him into submission, yeah. <laughs> which is like a really weird message to send to, especially yeah, younger audiences. Just like <laughs> watching this, where like they were bullied, um, and it, it's it, you know like it took a, a toll on them psychologically. But then they turned around and essentially it was like bullying this clown guy. You got to bully back. Yeah, yeah. Bully, it was a really <laughs> weird kind of message to give to the kids. Where this one was just like, oh, we're just gonna we're gonna fight back and rip his heart. They rip his heart out both times, and it's symbolic of you know taking the steam out of this guy or like cutting him down a couple notches but like i know like even in in this in it chapter two i think they make stephen king makes a, a guest appearance as he usually does in a lot of his adaptations oh yes and i think yeah. one of the things that people criticize king's work about a lot is that he really his endings turn out to not be that great compared to the rest of the work and they he pokes fun about that a little bit because bill's character yeah. james mcavoy um, yeah, yeah. it goes in the shop and Steve, and he's a writer, a horror writer, obviously an analog, an in-world yeah. analog for Stephen King himself. But the pawn shop owner is played by Stephen King. And he's like, do you want me to sign a book for you? And Stephen King's like, no, nah, I don't like your endings. Obviously poking fun yeah. at himself. <laughs> but I think that I, again, not having read the original novel, like both the endings of this were kind of a letdown in terms of like, mm -hmm. I like the, in it chapter two, like the after they killed it and like, they're kind of they're celebrating and they they do the dive into the the quarry again and uh you know that's kind of like symbolic of washing all that pain away and then they there's kind of that resolution and then it, it does that cut scene back to when they were kids and the first time beating it and walking away and it's like seeing that connection of like oh that that bond is was never broken even though it tried to destroy that bond right but in the, yeah. and then in the 1990 miniseries they just kind of like <laughs> It had used the deadlights, which again they didn't explain in any of the movies because um, they don't need to. Yeah. They just started, <laughs> but they just started calling them the deadlights. Um, sure, whatever. Um, they didn't explain how because you, you become dead when you look at them. You're done. But they don't. <laughs> Beth doesn't die when she looks at it. She just gained. She, well, in she, fact, not only does she not die in the 2017 it, Beth right, actually gains, don't lose your train of thought. She what gains were you trying to superpowers. say? Superpowers. She gains clairvoyance into the future, but yes. based on the endings of these movies. I don't know if it's like the source material, but it just seemed that they did not know how to end the conflict with it. Like they didn't, they weren't sure how to do it. Like the writers that is, whether that was Stephen King himself or whether that was the people adapting the screenplay from King's work, but it just kind of peered out at the end. We're just like, I guess just have him call some names and then he turns into a puddle and they rip its heart out. <laughs> and, the, and the 1990 version is just like, it's a giant spider and it's, has used in the deadlights and it's it freezes everybody and they can't move i guess we can just like have the, the spider be pushed over and they rip its heart out i guess yeah that was hilarious the one guy falls victim to the deadlights right? he's frozen <laughs> yeah. his buddy's like i'm gonna come get you he goes over but no he looks up he's frozen now. he's looking and then the third guy comes over no i'm gonna help you both of you i, I looked at the deadlights i'm frozen <laughs> it's like and i hate to make i hate to make light of situations like this but there were you know, you hear stories about 
somebody who goes into a building, carbon monoxide and they pass out. Mm. Somebody sees them on the stairs, goes to rescue them without knowing and they pass out. Yeah, man, that's, that's grim. That's grim. But like this was played, it wasn't played for laughs, but this was a lot, this was, this was pretty funny. Yeah. It was like, you see something, yeah. you see like one body, maybe you rush in to see what's going on, but you see two bodies lying there. It's like, I'm going to call yeah. the cops maybe. <laughs> maybe it's like, maybe I'm not going to just rush in and stare at them. <laughs> Can you imagine if the kids had cell phones back then? They could at least just call the cops into the sewers to help them out a little bit, bring some firepower. Uh, the the, the but, cops in Derry are probably all child molesters too, like it, like every other adult in Derry was apparently. But so I will say, I will say though, in it, the 2017 version, that the first yep. one, I think like in when they face off against it the first time, and it is like like Pennywise the clown is like. You know, I'll, he's got Bill. He's like, if you give me Bill, I'll let the rest of you guys go. And all the kids yeah. are like, and then Finn Wolfhart's Richie gets up and gives a speech about, I was like, you, you, you know, first of all, you dragged me into down to the sewers. You dragged us all down here to the sewers and you made us go through the gray water. And it's like, and now I'm going to have to kill this <laughs> fucking clown. It's like, it's one of the great, it's an amazing line and an amazing delivery. Yeah. Cause you think like, oh, they're going to abandon Bill. And it's like, they did a really good job building that tension. It's like, oh, maybe they are going to yeah. give up their friend to, to go live. It's like, no, it's a, it's a, listen, for all the, all the grief I've given that it's like, there's moments like that or just great writing. And like Finn Wolfhard shows off why he's going to be a, a big star. But that line is just, it's just great. There's one thing I'm hearing here is that the only element <laughs> of it 2017 you liked was Finn Wolfhard <laughs> and his performance and his crazy, <laughs> his crazy lines. Pretty much Finn Wolfhard, the rest of the, the crew there, that, that, and the actor played Beth too. She was really good. I want to see her in more stuff. I think she's going places. Well, it's funny you mentioned she looks like Amy Adams. Uh, she was in an Amy Adams HBO series, Sharp Objects, which I watched uh, a couple of years ago. I didn't realize it was oh, really? uh, that same actress, but I and I think it's a child version of Amy Adams. <laughs> like it's flashback scenes. I I believe it's so. There's some connection there at least. It's funny. But. It's like it reminds me of like in Nocturnal Animals, where I think. Uh, Amy yeah. Adams and Isla Fisher were, were casting next. I think people have been <laughs> for a long time have been, been making the comparison that they looked a lot alike. Yeah. And then the director specifically kind of cast them and the, to, to kind of play on that kind of meta knowledge. But, <laughs> but yeah, like the child actors were all great, but yeah, Finn Wolfhart was a standout in that one. And Bill Hader was a standout, I think in the, in the second one as well, but that yeah. they were just given, I think those kind of characters, it's easier to, to have fun with as a, as a writer. Right. And so they were given better material, I think. So before we jump into our own actual ratings, I'll just give you some averages from around the internet, and including the box office, which I, I always forget to include in these episodes, but oh, this is a perfect opportunity. Like it was like a huge box office success, right? Huge success. Uh, $700 million worldwide. The 29th biggest grossing film of all time. Yeah, isn't it like, okay. isn't it still like the biggest horror movie, like box office wise? Probably. I think it broke all the records yeah. for like R-rated movies and horror and stuff. The sequel about almost half at $474 million Ouch. worldwide. The Obviously the TV movie doesn't have any figures <laughs> like that um, <laughs> in terms of, but apparently in 1990, the second part, like the second part of the movie yeah. was the most recorded 
episode or movie from TV. So people were really busting out their VCRs. They did not want to miss the second part of it in 1990. And I think it should, that's, that's got to count for something. I, I guarantee somewhere my mom has a VHS tape version of this. It's like Langoliers on a, on a shelf somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of ratings, uh, as everyone knows, we use Letterboxd, uh, a movie site uh, where we log movies. We can write reviews. The user base there is given it 2017 an average of 3.5, the 2019 oh. part two 3.0, and the 1990 version has an average of 3.1, barely edging out the part two of the modern uh, adaptation. Yeah. IMDb follows a very similar structure: 7.3 for the 2017, 6.5 for its sequel, and 6.8 for the 1990 TV movie. Rotten Tomatoes the exact same thing: 83%, 62%, and 68%. Um, wow. Which honestly basically lines up with my own ratings on here where oh, really? I think I've given the 2017 it is like if I had to rank these and you have to rank these right now <laughs> for the podcast, <laughs> you're right, the you have no choice. <laughs> my, my ranking goes, yeah, 2017 it, uh, probably four, four and a half stars, 2019 it, chapter two, two and a half, three stars maybe, and then 1990 it, a solid three stars. Hmm. How's your ranking of these movies? So before I give the ranking, I was like, I really thought yeah. with how popular um, it 2017 was that the ratings were going to be like the user ratings were going to be a lot higher. I, I expected in like the four, four and a half star range. Cause like seeing how popular it was and how much money it made. Right. Like, I think, uh, honestly, I think like a seven plus on IMDb is considered pretty high. The letterbox one, three and a half is pretty decent for a while, for, for something like that. I feel like you're the, I'm kind of surprised by the 83% Ron Tomatoes. Like that's the critics ratings, right? Um, and that's well, pretty high for a horror movie, really. Ron Tomatoes ratings are pretty much useless. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we have our issues with that, but it's a metric that we can't avoid. In yeah, the no, movie fair enough. That we're in. But I expect, um, and, that's pretty uh, high though. Like, and for me, like the 62% on the chapter two is way too high for a critic rating on Ron Tomatoes, but it is what it huh. is. And I kind of thought, I mean, going back to 1990, Ron Tomatoes wasn't around. They've just accumulated, it was like a couple dozen old reviews to put together that metric, but yeah, it is what it is. All right. So my rating is, I, so I ranked them um, the same as you. So it 2017, mm-hmm. that's fair. It chapter two, and then it 1990. So, oh, that's, that's different order for me. What do you mean? I rate the 1990 higher than the chapter two. Oh, I thought you had them in the same order. Oh, no. Um, so the the first, so I gave on Letterboxd both it and it chapter two, 2.5 out of five stars. Um, yeah. They both felt like half a movie was made. So it felt appropriate to give them exactly half marks. Put them together, 2.5 plus 2.5 equals 2.5 still, because even together, they still only feel like <laughs> half a movie. Really, you should have given them these like one or one and a half. <laughs> no, because they were, listen, like they were still competently made movies, great actors, great performances, like shining, a little bit of a shining, to use a pun here, of, of, a, great sh- of a great script shining through. Can you hear my head knocking? Uh, what they, <laughs> they utterly failed in terms of storytelling, in terms of narrative, in terms of thematic exploration, in terms of just, just the basic fundamentals of storytelling. They, they failed utterly. Were you scared at all during these movies? No, and that's the thing too. Is like they so failed at being a horror. Film they were too. branded as horror films, but they felt more like coming of age films. If they had branded them as like coming of age drama with some horror elements, honestly, I think the and that's where 
I, that's where my enjoyment from the first one really, I mean, I love the horror elements, but I love the coming of age stuff. And I'd love that combination. It's like stand by me. If it had horrible, <laughs> clowns, yeah. the clown in it, right? It's just like, that'd be a perfect movie. And it's like, I kind of yeah. feel like I got that with, with this one. And then, Anyways, go on. Yeah. And then the 1990 version, I gave 1.5 stars. Um, 1.5. Yeah. I mean, wow. again, it was like, I, <laughs> I had to work. I had to rate with what I, what I had to work with here. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, outside of like, I loved watching some of the actors there, like uh, Lana Lang and then uh, Night Court Judge and Three's Company there. They were all doing a great job. I thought you would get bonus points for, I thought you were a big term Tim Curry fan for some reason. Yeah. See, and I am. And I thought I was expecting, maybe it's because my expectations were different. Like Tim Curry did an amazing job, but I was expecting more like Rocky Horror Picture Show Tim Curry, like wild, crazy, mm, yeah. especially after seeing um, what Bill Skarsgård. Um, did with the character, not Alexander Skarsgård. I'm never going to let that go, by the way, Brian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, yeah, he's like, that was a really restrained Tim Curry. I wanted to see like the evil Grinch grin like well, he the, gave in like uh, Home Alone 2. <laughs> the issue, yeah, honestly, <laughs> the issue is that uh, Tim Curry was acting out of a sewer grate the entire movie. Yeah. If he wasn't acting out of a sewer grate, it was a, uh, it was honestly, a hole in the shower. If, it was just if like. If he had been given like the yeah. same like the same leeway that Bill Skarsgård had and like had the same, like, yeah, he would have been a lot better, but yeah. Like really amped it up. But like, and it didn't help that he was morphed into a giant spider for most of the final fight. Right. Like Pennywise, the clown guy disappears into a giant spider. Yeah. And it's not even like in the, in the new version, it's chapter two is like, it's an anthropomorphic. It's like a clown body on a spider clown, like upper torso (laughs) on a spider body. It's just like, no, it's just like a, a spider, a giant spider with no face. So Tim Curry can't even get in on the final battle. But no, Tim Curry is also part of that one and a half stars. Everything else, like the script, the production <laughs> value, is just like yeah, it's a 1990 TV miniseries horror movie that wasn't allowed to have blood in it. So it's like yeah, I yeah. can't, uh, I can't really give it that much. The only other thing that I liked about it again was that story structure that they really did a good job of, you know, telling the parallel stories of the adults and the kids yeah. at the same time. But yeah. So when do you go out and grab the book? Like, are you compelled to check out the book at this or maybe focus on other Stephen King content first? Um, I am now because I have this morbid curiosity because despite all the smack I've talked about it and it chapter two, I find myself utterly fascinated by the, the components of it. The story about getting older, the story about, um, you know, looking yeah. back on your childhood and, and the friends and the relationships you had and then comparing it now to where you are in your life and, and being able to draw those through lines and, and in your own mind, you can play those stories in parallel where you're living your life now, but you're flashing back to when you were a kid and making some of those connections in your own life narrative. That to me is the really fascinating thing about these movies. And I think that's the thing that keeps me engaged with these movies, even though on a narrative level, they don't work for me at all. But there's that element in them. There's this weird spark where, like, I got, yeah. I have to pick these movies up now. I have to watch them again for the performances, but also for like, there's some weird, weird nagging. It's it got it. It's hooks into me somehow, um, as Stephen King stories somehow do. Yeah, like you even said it. A week later, you're still thinking about this movie frequently, right? And it's like, if it's for me, if it's a really bad movie, I 
pretty quickly push it out of my mind. It's like, I'll give it my, my ranking on letterbox and just kind of move on with life. But sometimes a movie just has these elements that, well, that grab you. They just keep inkling away in your brain. Here's the thing. I know that I've talked about these stories failing narratively or failing at storytelling elements in general, but I appreciate a good failure. That's how we learn. I think there's a disconnect often where we talk about as a society or as a culture of failure being our greatest teacher, but then we always build, try to build this safety net of like never letting anybody fail. So like I talk about these movies being failures to me, failures narratively, um, but they're still, I'm still fascinated by them and I still want to revisit them yeah. even though they don't work for me. And I like, I talk about them being failures, but like two and a half stars out of five is not like the worst movie in the world either. It's not the worst no. rating. Yeah, you far you probably it. expected them to be much lower after all the, all the stuff I was saying. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, they're, uh, it's, it was frustrating to watch, but at the same time it's like, yeah, like I, cause I thinking about like, Oh, my childhood story, how would it play out? If I were to tell my story now as yeah. a redacted year old man versus <laughs> when I was like a 13 year old kid <laughs> and play those stories in parallel, like what are how what's the influence between you know my the thirteen year old self and my redacted year old self? That's that's the interesting thing and that's the fascinating thing and that's why I love. I think King is fascinated with this as well. Stephen King, if you look at stories mm -hmm. like um, Stand by Me, based on the short story The Body, um, you know Stand by Me is this iconic coming of age film, um, you know about this group of friends as kids and kind of you know told from the perspective of one of them as adults. And then you find out at the end, like what their lives were like and how people drift apart and how people, you know, they change, but they, they're the same person, even though they're different people and that kind of paradox of identity. And I think that, that, that theme, um, that, that is, that you can find in a lot of Stephen King's work is really, it's really fundamental to the human condition. And I think that's what keeps people coming back. Um, for all the criticism I give to Stephen King's work as well, I think he's one of those writers where somebody else made this comment, but uh, Stephen King never uses one word when two will do. Um, he tends to be very <laughs> verbose and he tends to to write a lot more than I think he has to and explain a lot more than he has to. I think Stephen King, yeah. re reading his work, it's the opposite of the movies where the movies didn't give me enough to work with and Stephen King just gives me too much to work much. with and there's like a sweet spot in the middle. But for all of the criticisms I have for King's work, I still find myself every once in a while, I'm coming back, I'm engaged by his stuff and I'm fascinated to, to read the, yeah. the next story, right? Well, it's really, my dad was, and I mean, still is a huge Stephen King fan. And I, I think read a lot of his content. I remember him telling me many, many years ago that Stephen King became such a huge writer, so popular, so successful. Yeah that they really did not need to edit his work anymore. Like his work doesn't go edited in the same way it would for like anyone else. And especially at the beginning of his career, if you read his books at the beginning, they're going to be shorter. They're going to be more concise. They're probably going to be a bit better. But later on, you know, he's too big that he can bypass editing. And then we get these giant yeah. novels that are 1,100, 1,500 plus pages. That's just like, oh, nobody is... Yeah, to, his, to detriment. his detriment yeah. is, is that he doesn't get editing anymore. It's like we really, you really need someone to go in and edit 
these movies, <laughs> sorry, not these movies, <laughs> these, these books down into uh, like better books, basically. And especially with the, the comment that all his endings suck, maybe you could use some help with that yeah, through not, the editing process. I, would, I don't I know. Better is the right word because I don't know if I'm as a, as a, you know, like a, an aspiring writer myself, if I'm in a place to criticize um, one of the most celebrated writers of all time. Yeah, yeah. But maybe like, like you saying, like just clean it up and polish it a bit more. I think maybe this is the polishing yeah. and, and running that by. Maybe, maybe like it's tough to tell. We're speculating purely. Um, it's this is pure speculation on our parts. But like Stephen King may have been I barely read his own success, right? Whereas like, oh, yeah, he got successful. Um, he was. You know, he was a good writer, obviously. He is a good writer. He's not dead. <laughs> um, he, he is a good writer. Um, but maybe because he got so big, you know, being in the right place at the right time, yeah. got so big and got so popular that people were, like, at the upper echelons, editors and publishers were afraid to, you know, chase away that spark of that magic. And, and maybe it was like a, an unfortunate kind of cycle of, you know, getting, becoming a victim of your own success in that way. Either way, stories are still gripping and we're, we're, we're still talking about them, whether it's in 100%. book form or the movie adaptations, of which there are literally, I think, now dozens. That's a wrap on another episode of the Real Film Chronicles podcast. Thank you for listening and hanging out with us today. We really appreciate your support and look forward to you joining us for the next episode. We can be found around the internet and social media, with our home base being realfilmchronicles.com, which will have all the links you need to follow and keep in touch with us. Until next time, take care of yourself and others, and keep your film journey going.